When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Canada recently reached 40 million people in its population. And if you've been following immigration policies at all, then you may know that immigration is playing a larger role in our economy. New immigrants are offsetting labor shortages in key sectors, and they're helping to offset the effects of a declining workforce. As more and more people retire, they're helping to create the tax base to support all the services we use from healthcare to retirement. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on DAP to Business, I spoke to Rupa Banerjee, Canada Research Chair and Associate Professor of Human Resource Management at the Ted Rogers School of Business Management at Toronto Metropolitan University. Banerjee provided a sweeping history of the last half century of immigration in Canada, how the roots of our modern immigration point system started in the 1960s, and how that system has evolved from a one-step system where you basically would apply and then come here to a system that she described as multi-step. That is, today, many immigrants initially come here on a temporary basis, perhaps as students, and may receive numerous temporary permits before being granted permanent residency, if at all. Canada expects to add about 1.4 million new permanent residents in the next few years, and even more after that. And so, as our immigration system has grown, it has become more complicated to manage. And Banerjee and I discussed what our government, our universities, employers, and others can do to ensure that new immigrants successfully integrate with the labor force. As always, the interview is edited for clarity and brevity. Rupa, thank you for coming on Down to Business. Not a problem at all. So immigration levels are rising in Canada. Many people know this, but not a lot else. Can we talk about the context on immigration levels and perhaps where we're headed? Sure. So... Before the pandemic, for about a decade or so, you know, we had been creeping up from about 250,000 per year to over 300,000 per year. And the levels were expected to increase slowly over time. And then, of course, the pandemic hit. We didn't hit the targets for a good year almost uh, because borders were closed, essentially. That and the fact that it became very clear that the post-pandemic period was going to be very challenging really changed the immigration targets that the Canadian government set. And so we now have essentially decided that we are going to increase immigration levels to 465,000 this year. That's our target for this year. And 485,000 in 2024, reaching 500,000 in 2025. And it's expected to continue increasing. So really, over the next few years, we're going to be admitting over 1.4 million new permanent residents. Wow. Okay. 1.4 million. But as you mentioned, these are targets. Mm -hmm. What are some of the reasons why we're setting the targets at these levels? Well, essentially, we need people. I mean, there's two major trends that have really prompted the adjustment of the immigration targets. One is labor shortages. And the second one is simply demographic decline. I mean, we're just not having enough children to create a tax base to support our population. We have an aging population, as many sort of developed countries around the world, and we need the tax base essentially to be able to provide 
healthcare and elder care support services to those folks. And we simply don't have that at the moment. When you take that, coupled with the fact that there are real intensive labor shortages in certain industries, so it's not necessarily equal across the Canadian economy, but in certain areas and and sectors, there's severe labor shortages. And so those two things combined has really prompted the Canadian government to essentially use immigration as the central pillar for Canada's post-pandemic economic recovery and long-term stability and growth. Given the level of importance, and I want to say ignorance, but I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I mean, most people do not know a lot about immigration policy. Can we talk about our express entry system, the point system, and how Canada decides who gets immigration status? Right. I actually want to take a couple of steps back even before getting to that. Sure. So, you know, Canada's immigration system historically has really been a nation building exercise. So, you know, I'm going to start right at 1967, very briefly, when we uh, introduced the point system and really have been, you know, celebrated around the world as the first country to introduce a points based immigrant selection system to prioritize skills and human capital in selecting newcomers. And so at that time, it really was what we call a one step immigration system in which folks applied from abroad and based on their credentials or family connections, they were able to come here directly from abroad. And the idea was that there was a very large economic immigration system, but there was also a robust family unification system that went along with it so that, you know, skilled immigrants came, they also brought their family members. And we built communities. And uh, you see the growth of Lots of communities all around Canada really based on that kind of ideology that we had starting in the late 1960s. Okay, I'll just pause for a moment. That is actually a great summary of the way our immigration system once worked. One step, apply for permanent resident, settle in Canada, apply to be a permanent resident, get it, settle in Canada. It has changed to become more complicated with multiple steps, you say. And I'm going to ask if you can walk through that a little bit. But as we turn to the 21st century, around end of the 90s, the early 2000s, our immigration system really shifted from really a permanent one-step nation-building kind of system to one which takes much more of a, a temporary approach to immigration. So when we say we are expecting 1.4 million permanent residents, that's really not the whole story. There's two to three times that many newcomers that we will be expecting during that time frame to be admitted as temporary residents. So our temporary immigration system is now significantly larger than our permanent immigration system. And so many of the roles that are held by immigrants in particularly low-skill service sectors are actually not all held by permanent residents. Many of them are held by temporary residents. And we have a very complicated myriad of temporary resident permits that sort potential newcomers into these temporary streams. And right now, the largest of which are international students, to be honest. And so this has kind of led to a proliferation of really two-step immigration or more accurately, multi-step immigration in Canada. So because we have this large temporary resident program with international students and other temporary workers being brought in, Many of them then would love to apply for permanent resident status. And we have, the Canadian government has put into place pathways for temporary residents to actually transition to permanent resident status. But these pathways are not always very 
clean, clear, and straightforward, right? They're often very complicated and twisty and turny, I guess you could say. Many uh, temporary residents end up holding numerous different kinds of permits before they are actually able to transition to permanent resident status. But for those of temporary residents who are able to transition, there are a couple of really important streams that have become very prevalent. So historically, skilled immigrants used to come through what we call the Federal Skilled Workers Program. But today, with the two-step or multi-step immigration, provincial nominee programs and Canadian Experience Class Program has become increasingly common and increasingly important. So those two programs actually allow for and actually prioritize those who have already been living, working, and studying in Canada before applying for permanent residence status. So our system has really shifted. It sounds like it's a big shift. And I just want to make sure I understood what you're saying in that I'm, you know, absorbing everything you're saying, which is that there was this shift where we began to allow a lot more temporary residents. I think you said in like the late 90s, early 2000s. It started, yeah. Mm -hmm. And most of those are international students. What are we talking about here? How many, how does that compare to the permanent ones that we're entering? So our estimates are that, you know, there's two to three times the number of temporary resident permits being issued per year as the number of permanent admissions. Now, these are not really comparing apples to apples, of course, because those folks aren't here permanently. Whereas when you admit a permanent resident, you know, that's a person who is going to stay in Canada, raise their family in Canada, etc. And at least in theory, those temporary resident permits, although much, much higher, there's more churn, right? So people leave after uh, completing their, their term if they're not able to transition to permanent resident status. I mean, do we know what percentage are able to transition to permanent status? Among international students, at least, about three in 10 are able to transition. And historically, when we thought about temporary foreign workers in Canada, the image that often comes to mind are farm workers. And we still have a very large farm worker program, agricultural worker program. And those folks don't have almost any pathways to become permanent. So we're very selective about who we actually allow to transition to permanent resident status. So agricultural workers, now there is a one pilot program in which a very small number of agricultural workers are able to transition. But for the most part, they really have no way to transition. So we have these situations where in certain sectors, people become permanently temporary. And so they come year after year to do the jobs and then go back home without ever really being able to bring their families or actually even consider settling in Canada. Well, sort of seasonal. It's very seasonal. Another group that we often, people often think about when we think about temporary workers in Canada are caregivers. So live-in caregivers are a, a large group that have been admitted over the years, especially throughout the 90s and into the early 2000s, up till about 2014 or so, there was a live-in caregiver program, which actually let in large numbers, primarily Filipina women as caregivers, and they had closed work permits, which meant they lived in their employers' homes. And after a two-year time frame, they were actually given the opportunity to apply for permanent resident status. So many of those caregivers were able to actually transition to permanent. But for the most part today, that does not represent who our temporary residents are now in 2023. Today, for the vast majority of them, it is international students and graduates who have completed international education in Canada and their spouses. So that's really the predominant group of temporary permit holders that we have in Canada today. And those individuals do have really a lot of opportunity to transition. 
only three out of 10 are actually able to transition for a variety of reasons, but they are able to transition because they often have the credentials that are required within our express entry system. And those credentials are from a Canadian institution. And if they are able to find employment after graduation, they are able to accrue the Canadian experience that's required. That's not universal. There's a lot of folks who've slipped through the cracks and and are not able to find the types of jobs that are needed to be able to transition to permanence. But the opportunities are there for those individuals. So you just described a shift from a one-step to a multi-step system in which you're probably arriving on a temporary basis and maybe getting a couple different temporary permits before you get that permanent resident status. You said you traced the shift to the 1990s, which is the time period I associate with the acceleration of globalization. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what impact that may have had on this shift? Yeah, so I think, you know, the factors are really multi-layered. So I, I definitely think that globalization has indeed had an impact on the kind of labor migration patterns we see in Canada, as well as in a a lot of immigrant receiving countries. As uh, companies have really tried to uh, become increasingly flexible in terms of hiring and, you know, increase their efficiency within their processes, migrant labor is, you know, kind of an ideal source of that flexible and mobile kinds of sources of of workers. So in areas like construction, hospitality, healthcare, you do see increasingly organizations subcontracting various aspects of their functions out to smaller and smaller contractors. And, you know, when you see that kind of fissuring of companies and organizations, the labor process becomes the contracting decision rather than sort of a traditional hiring decision as we used to think of it. And so migrant labor is in many ways a vulnerable source of labor that is of lower cost. And therefore, the demand for migrant workers did indeed go up at that time. And so that coupled with the fact that we had legislative changes that promoted and enabled this use of migrant labor absolutely contributed to the trend. So let's be clear. We have had migrant workers in agriculture and in caregiving, child care and elder care for decades. So this is not something that's absolutely new. But I think that the expansion of migrant labor into other areas, which we didn't traditionally see, like migrant workers working in restaurants, in fast food, in a whole range of sectors, which in the past wasn't really traditionally filled by temporary migrant labor, it is evidence of employers trying their best to make their labor sources more flexible, more low cost, and being able to basically respond to fluctuating labor demands through temporary migrant workers. I do think that's the case. You said that many, many farm workers, there's a pilot program to allow them a path to obtain permanent status. I'm just wondering on some level, what the rationale is for that. I mean, I, I know like that is very difficult work to do. It's very unrewarding. We've been able to skate by and rely, and maybe this is just going to be the case forever, on seasonal labor. But you could also imagine a world where that would shift because of something like another pandemic. Mm-hmm. I wonder for that reason or for other reasons, if we're rethinking whether that pilot program is sort of about trying to create a path. No, I, I need to be very clear. The pilot program to enable agricultural workers to transition to permanent residence is a tiny, tiny program that was brought out in the context of the pandemic. And there has been activists and advocates lobbying for agricultural workers' rights for decades. But this is one 
sector in which we really do not have a lot of movement in terms of enabling agricultural workers to transition to permanent residence. This has been going on for decades and decades, and people come season after season after season for decades. So, you know, I don't think we should be lulled into believing that now maybe we're moving into an era where agricultural workers from Mexico or Jamaica are going to have pathways to permanent residence. I don't think that's the case. I think that was just a very small, you know, little window in the context of the challenges of the pandemic. And we have to remember that during the pandemic, agricultural workers suffered terribly because of the crowded and cramped living and working conditions on farms and the reluctance of a lot of those workers to even admit that they were sick when they were sick because their visas were tied to their employers. So they would be immediately sent home. So it was it was just a recipe for disaster. And the illness rate and death rate on farms was extremely high. And so I think, uh, you know, small pathway that was created during the pandemic was just that. And so I think the agricultural sector is one where this system has, quote unquote, worked for the farmers for Canadian society, and in some ways for the workers themselves, because they're able to essentially make uh, enough money for their families to survive for the year during the planting season or the harvesting season. That being said, the lack of oversight, the lack of employment rights and exploitation on those farms, you know, has been on in the spotlight for a long time. And yet, I don't think a lot has changed, unfortunately. They still don't have the right to, you know, join unions. Oftentimes, a whole host of mundane and really egregious violations of employment standards that take place on those farms and that really go under the radar and continue to do so. Okay. This is sort of a complicated question, but when we started off this conversation, we talked about 500,000 immigrants per year, but we were talking about people who can get permanent residence, which is complicated because a lot of the permanent residents are already in the country and they're just transitioning from temporary status to permanent status. Is there a best estimate of how many people per year we're sort of adding? This is a really great question. And as far as I know, I don't know if that's very kind of readily available out there. I can certainly look into that and get back to you on that, Gabe. I'm, oh, fair uh, enough. No worries. But, but, but you're absolutely right in understanding the fact that it's very misleading to say that we're actually adding, you know, 485,000 or 500,000 folks into our labor market because a lot of those folks are already in the country, either as graduates, so they're holding postgraduate work permits, or as students, or as some other type of temporary foreign worker. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. One of the ways that I'd always heard immigration characterized in Canada was that In the U.S., immigration is very polarized, and I know that there have been a lot of high-profile tech CEOs from Silicon Valley who held a big press conference about how they need engineers and they need to import them from foreign countries, and they can't. And so one of the things I've always heard about Canada is that we've served as a place where tech companies can open an office. If they can't get a skilled worker into their U.S. headquarters or a satellite office, then they can open an office in Canada and maybe get some of those people jobs here. Is that fair or is that a bit of a myth? It's actually somewhat fair. I think our temporary foreign worker admission system is relatively smooth, particularly for high-skill professional occupations. So if you have an employer that's looking to hire a temporary worker through one of the various streams that exist, it is fairly easy. And I think another really important difference between Canada and the U.S. here 
is that while it's super polarizing in the U.S., in Canada, immigration, it appears to be very uncontroversial. So even with the increasing numbers and the challenges introduced by the pandemic, most Canadians are supportive of immigration. They are not asking for fewer immigrants. In fact, in various surveys, including the Environic Annual Survey of sort of immigration attitudes to the Canadian public, we see that the overwhelming majority of Canadians actually welcome newcomers because they feel that immigrants benefit the Canadian economy. So the messaging that has been put out by the Canadian government that, look, we need immigrants, both because of the labor shortages and because of the demographic factors, has gotten through. And so that's, I think, a real difference between the situation in Canada versus the U.S. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that there are challenges with our immigration process, right? Like we have this point system, which is, as you mentioned, been emulated around the world. But there are challenges to our system, which had prioritized high-skilled immigrants with secondary education in finance or technology, but now is also looking at what might be called lower-skilled workers who could be truck drivers or heavy equipment operators. What are some of the biggest challenges to successfully integrating immigrants into our economy, into our markets, to ensure that this operates smoothly and this public support continues? I think this is the million-dollar question. I actually see that there's a little bit of a paradox in Canada where the public tends to be quite positive and supportive towards immigration as a, an economic imperative. But on the other hand, when you actually look at how those immigrants do once they land on the ground, they face numerous challenges. And those challenges continue to persist despite our carefully calibrated express entry system, which you know really prioritizes education and language skills. I mean, we have stringent language testing requirements. Any credentials that are acquired abroad have to be accredited by an outside accreditation agency. So we have quite a few checks and balances in the Canadian economic immigration system to ensure that quality of human capital is good. And so despite that, we see that skilled newcomers, those with university education and higher, still tend to be grossly underemployed. Uh, often working in what we call survival jobs. And this often leads to a vicious cycle of disadvantage. So if you have, uh, you know, a professional engineer, for example, who comes in, has to start working in a gas station, for example, and then he loses some of his skills over time. And not only does he lose his technical skills, he also doesn't really gain the types of soft skills that perhaps he would require in his profession because he's so far away from profession. And so this often then leads to not just economic hardship for that newcomer, but a real loss to the economy and moreover, huge psychological cost. So when we're bringing in high-skilled people who are selected for their skills and attributes, and then they find that they actually are not valued for their skills and attributes and are stuck in totally unrelated lower level positions. This is very demotivating. It's demoralizing and it leads to a lot of mental health struggles, which obviously we know also have ripple effects onto their families, onto the communities. And so this is something I want to stress that this is not just an economic issue, it's a human issue. So in some ways, the fact that the Canadian system is opening up to what we're calling quote unquote lower skill or different types of skills, 
I think is a good thing because there are major gaps throughout the labor market. Not all of the labor shortages are in high skill occupations. In fact, a recent Statistics Canada report indicated that we have an oversupply of highly educated people and not enough jobs that require high education. Uh, whereas in lower skill occupations, there's much more of a labor shortage in certain sectors. So, you know, I think that there's actually a benefit to bringing in a wider variety of different types of skills. And when you have a person who is qualified to be a truck driver or to be a chef, and then they work in that sector, that's appropriate employment. And so the impact is not as psychologically demoralized because they actually came in to do that job. Yeah. One thing I had heard about this was in Toronto, where I live, there are midwives But I've heard from people that a fair number of the midwife are actually credentialed as doctors, but not in Canada. Absolutely. The job is somewhat related in that it's health, but it struck me as an interesting sign that our labor integration is not going as smoothly as possible. And so I wanted to ask you, like, how do you address that? Because credentials from all over the world can be quite different is one of the challenges. Absolutely. And I think Uh, For those who work in a licensed occupation where a regulatory body has to approve your credentials, there's another layer of challenges that need to be overcome. There's been some progress in this. So, for example, in Ontario, the professional engineering body basically recently removed the requirement to have Canadian work experience in order to qualify to become a professional engineer. So this issue of Canadian work experience continues to be a really major barrier for skilled newcomers. Is this like a chicken and the egg type issue where you could be an engineer, but you need to have experience working as an engineer in Canada, but to work as an engineer in Canada, you need to have experience. Is it like that sort of thing? (laughs) Well, absolutely. Because you hear from skilled newcomers that they just need that chance to gain the Canadian work experience in order to then be able to have Canadian work experience, right? Because some folks actually take a survival job or a a job in a totally different industry thinking that this will help them tick off that Canadian work experience box for when they want to enter their, their real occupation. But often what they find is that's not quite the case. So working in, say, Tim Hortons or some other fast food restaurant, it often isn't viewed by employers as appropriate Canadian work experience. So, but really, this is one of the major barriers. And this is despite the fact that arbitrarily requiring Canadian work experience has been deemed by the Ontario Human Rights Tribunal to be a form of systemic discrimination. So this has already been indicated to be an issue, but employers continue to routinely either implicitly or explicitly use Canadian experience as a bar to restrict entry for newcomers. And so, you know, until we can address that issue, I think there's a lot of problems that will continue to remain. So is there a government agency can do this? How do we address this issue? So at the moment, I have to say that settlement services are not optimized to be able to help skilled newcomers to really re-enter their occupations. So settlement services are still geared towards people who have no language skills, folks who are really just looking to essentially get a job, period. And so I think there's a lot of room within the settlement service sector to improve the kinds of services that are available to skilled newcomers. Language training programs have been deemed to be not effective for actually helping skilled 
professional immigrants to gain kind of local specific language skills, for example. So that's one layer. And many skilled newcomers actually report that they don't use settlement services for this exact reason, because they feel that it's really not for them. It's for people who have no language skills and are really just at the very basic level of comprehension. So on top of that, we have to look at the role of employers themselves. So we continue to have disproportionately white Canadian-born decision makers within employers that are making the choices of who gets hired. So for newcomers who are coming in, just being able to break into the market within their sector is therefore increasingly difficult. I mean, we know that bias is real. There have been numerous studies that have shown the ways in which names, foreign sounding names, for example, are discounted and discarded by hiring managers. So, you know, while we really seem to value immigrants and immigration in surveys on the ground, employers don't behave that way. Many of them are very, very happy to hire temporary foreign workers for specific roles. But when it comes to actually bringing in permanent skilled immigrants for jobs that, you know, are high wage, high skill jobs, it's just not happening. There's still way too many examples of employers essentially saying, well, we're just not sure about whether their credentials are real. And this is despite those credentials being accredited by, you know, an outside agency or for those who are graduating from a Canadian institution, because we do have increasingly international students who graduated from a college or university in Canada, employers continue to say, well, I know their degree is from here, but they just don't fit. So this idea of fit is still a major barrier for immigrants, despite all of the various types of efforts that are being put forward to allow them to integrate into the workforce, I think a lot of the burden is still put on the newcomer to essentially completely adjust and then enter the labor market. Whereas in my view, I think the employment process itself is part of the adjustment process. And so employers and hiring managers, they need to play a role within that integration process. So giving that chance to someone who is educated abroad to actually find employment and be able to prove themselves over time. So when I've done interviews with employers, I've actually been surprised by how frank they are in their level of, I would say, uncertainty and being risk averse. Hmm. They're often very weary of taking on immigrants in roles that are permanent and high skill and high wage. This seems like it's a tricky issue to deal with through government policies because it's an issue of attitudes among employers. How can this kind of thing be addressed by the government, which controls the level of immigration? My sense of this is that while immigration is largely considered a positive thing by many Canadians, amid increasing housing costs, I see increasingly negative comments about immigration Mm -hmm. out there. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder, like, if you could just maybe talk to me about what some of the policy prescriptions are. Yeah, there's a number of policy initiatives that the government can certainly put into place to try and mitigate some of the risk to employers. So what I hear over and over again, as I said from employers, is that they have labor shortages. They want to hire newcomers, but they're still worried about what that would mean and whether that will be, you know, a huge 
burden to them as an organization. So having some kinds of system of grants that could help newcomers to actually gain employment and offset some of that risk for employers could be something that would be helpful. So tax breaks. Um, on the side of the, of the newcomer, having more accessibility to loans or grants to help newcomers actually overcome this need to take a survival job, right? So what happens is you end up working at a gas station and therefore two, three, four years, your resume, you know, has a big gap in it. And this scars your resume when you do try to start applying for jobs in your field. So providing more financial resources to newcomers to be able to gain human capital through training, skills, bridge programs without having to resort to survival jobs, that would be super helpful as well. What about outside of government? The post-secondary sector plays a massive role in, in improving the situation as well. As I said, we have increased our international student population and a large proportion of newcomers are now coming from the international student pool. And so work-integrated learning, co-op programs, internship programs, opportunities while those young people are students to actually get a job within the field would be immensely helpful. Because increasingly you see, because we have lifted the cap on work experience or getting a job for international students, now international students are able to actually work off campus for as many hours as they like. And so you see many of them take low-skill service jobs as a way to make money. Well, what if we provided opportunities for those international students to have skills-relevant positions while they're students to actually be able to gain the local knowledge and ensure that they can actually fit, essentially, once they do graduate? So I guess I feel that there's a really big role for the post-secondary sector, for employers themselves to kind of take on this um, attitudinal barrier that they have, but also for the government to introduce some initiatives to try and to reduce the risk from both sides of taking on a newcomer. To me, the selection system is very strong. We have a constant revisions to that selection system. Now we've in introduced targeted selection within express entry. So the government will actually decide which sector or particular group they will focus on. And there are pros and cons to this. There are some risks to doing this. But overall, I feel that the government selection system has been tried to be increasingly responsive to the fact that we really have labor shortages throughout the economy, and we're trying to address those. I think integration policy is where we really fall short. So once they're let into the country, really often they're left to their own devices, and the burden of integration is left to the newcomers. And I, while it's wonderful to have these robust selection system and, and these really large targets, unless we have the integration policies in place, we're going to potentially create an underclass, which could change the public's attitudes towards immigration. As we can't take that for granted. We can't take it for granted that the Canadian public will always be positive towards immigration. I mean, this can certainly change. And things like the housing crisis, the fact that a lot of particularly in immigrant centers like the GTA or the suburbs around the GTA, you really see concentrations of particular ethnic groups settling in those areas. I think the negative attitudes could arise from the mainstream Canadian population in response to that. Yeah. I just wanted to talk a little bit about 
immigration in a global context, it seems to me that wherever you look these days, there's immigration, right? Whether it's in the States or Canada Mm -hmm. or Europe or intermigration in Africa, immigration, it seems to me, is going to increase one way or another. You know, we've often talked about globalization as, you know, in, in the sense of trade, that our trade relationships with countries are growing. But it does also seem like there's a lot more intermigration, maybe some driven by climate change, others driven by economic opportunities. When you look at immigration, how important is it to see it as a product of globalization? Oh, it's absolutely intertwined, right? And in Canada, I mean, we see that, right? As climate change has changed the environment in so many places in the world, people have been choosing Canada. So when in surveys of comers, when they're asked, why did you choose Canada? One major reason is that it's become so hot or so unbearable in terms of the climate instability in my location that I was looking for a new place with new opportunities. So this is this is huge. I think increasingly you're going to see countries in the global north and particularly countries like Canada, which continue to be bearable in terms of weather and in terms of heat, you're going to see more and more people choose places like Canada. So there's forced migration, which continues to be a major problem as wars and conflict rage throughout the world. There's also more and more economic immigration as some of these countries in the global south, like India, have you know massive education systems, which do bring out lots of highly educated young people. So there's a very large population of educated young people coming out of India, where the education system is there, but the jobs are not always there. And a career progression opportunities are not always there. Plus, the burden of climate and oppressive heat in many of those locations and the pollution spurs them to come to places like Canada. And with the U.S. having restricted its economic immigration severely, Canada becomes increasingly attractive. So, you know, we've seen that American economic immigration system and its changes over time have also really benefited Canada. And a lot of people who perhaps would have gone to the U.S. in the past now can no longer get an H-1B visa or a green card. And so therefore, will choose to come to Canada instead. So I don't think this is a trend that is going anywhere. I think if anything, we're just going to see it proliferate even further as the years go by. And so we need to really come up with robust solutions to ensure that newcomers in Canada do well and that their children actually are able to prosper because ultimately that's where the Canadian system's strength really lies. I'm an example of that. My parents came here in the early 80s with us as a young family and they struggled. Even though they, my dad was highly educated, he struggled, he managed to do okay. And you know, now us, myself, my brother and others in my cohort, we are able to really do very well in the Canadian system and contribute and really be members of society that can really add to the Canadian fabric. And so that's what we want to see continue on. So we have to have really kind of well thought out solutions to ensure that this happens. Well, Rupa, it's been a terrific and informative discussion. I really thank you for coming on the show to talk to me. Not a problem. That was Rupa Banerjee, Canada Research Chair and Associate Professor of Human Resource Management at the Ted Rogers School of Business Management at Toronto Metropolitan University. That's this week's episode of Down to Business. Thank you for listening and supporting us in all ways that you can, whether it's sharing episodes or simply rating us on a podcasting app. 
This episode was produced by Bryce Hall, who designed our logo and composed and performed the original music on this show. Pamela Heaven, Victoria Wells, and Noella Ovid provided web support and editing. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll return with more episodes in the future. But until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.